You're listening to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. This is episode number 112, Juvenile Justice Inspiring Hope, an interview with the Honorable Maria Hernandez. Welcome to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. My name is Dave Stahoviak. And my name is Sandy Morgan. And this is the show where we empower you to study the issues, be a voice, and make a difference in ending human trafficking. And Sandy, we have talked many times on this show about the importance of partnerships, the importance of working across sectors and industries, and one of the key, key partnerships that the center has uh, established over the years is wonderful relationships with the legal community and helping uh, all of the folks in the justice system to connect with what the center's doing and vice versa so that uh, we can really leverage the talents of so many people out there who care so deeply about this issue. And that's why I'm really excited to have you introduce our guest today and to talk more about how these collaborative efforts have been working. Well, I am also very excited and also um, just a little bit proud of the leadership that we have here in Orange County. And for those of you listening, what happens here can happen there. You just start building relationships across sectors and that collaboration. Um, we, we don't just want you to know what we're doing in Orange County. We want you to see how you might be able to take that to your area. So let me introduce our guest, the Honorable Maria Hernandez was appointed presiding judge of the Juvenile Court, Orange County, in January 2014. Before that, as a juvenile court presiding judge, she was responsible for dependency and delinquency inventories. She presided over juvenile drug court, dependency drug court, and boys court. She chaired the task force relating to commercially sexually exploited children as well. Um, she has also served and is serving as a member of Chief, Chief Justice, California Supreme Court, Chief Justice Cantil Sakoyue's Keeping Kids in School and Out of Court Initiative Steering Committee, the Judicial Council of California's Advisory Committee on Providing Access and Fairness. And she's a faculty member for the Judicial Council of California Center for Judicial Education and Research. She's an active member of numerous law and community-related organizations and still continues to maintain a small inventory of cases while working with juvenile justice partners in the daily activities of juvenile court. That was a long list of achievements, but your honor, we are so happy to have your voice on this podcast. Yeah, that just doesn't sound like me, Dr. Morgan, but I, I appreciate that very, very nice, warm words and, and welcome. And I'm really happy to be here this morning with both of you. Well, what your bio really demonstrates is how important it is to have a broad relationship across sectors. And what just happened is the Juvenile Justice Summit Inspiring Hope. And I was fascinated with your vision and how you pulled people together. And I would like you to explain to us how you chose the theme Inspiring Hope. 
Well, first of all, I would like to make sure it is attributed to the appropriate person or persons. Um, it was not uh, my concept, Inspiring Hope, the title. Uh, one of my dear colleagues with the social service agency, Scott Burdick, uh, when we were sitting down about a year and a half ago to uh, develop more of our teen court program and expand that with our collaboratives, um, a passion that both of us uh, share. He actually tabbed one of our agendas, Inspiring Hope. Um, and from that, it grew. Dr. Morgan, we, we talked about what do we want to achieve with our youth, our children that we care so much about and need to develop more interventions and early identification and preventative measures for them. Um, and so the whole thought process of inspiring hope for them and for our system was used. And I actually asked him, though, when I came up with an idea of having a juvenile justice summit about eight or nine months ago, um, I asked him, can I use that as the theme of our summit? Because it really transcends the concept of what we are trying to accomplish here in Orange County with all of our collaboratives. Um, and he graciously obviously said yes, and Inspiring Hope was selected as the theme for our summit. So we were approaching um, our community issues with then a sense of hopelessness, so we had to start looking. And why were we, why were we discouraged? Well, I think we do things actually very well. I think independently, things that are happening here in Orange County on behalf of the children and families, we actually are far above many, many counties in California and certainly across the United States. Um, but we see that we have tremendous gaps in services and resources for our youth. And we see that there still exists a great deal of silos and barriers that we need to knock down so that we are collectively and more collaboratively approaching the issues for our families uh, and children here in Orange County. So not that so much we were completely discouraged, but we as a group, I think, are seeing that there are so many things that we could do better, but we need to have a unified approach in doing so. And and so that was that was part of the vision that I had with bringing the leaders and very dynamic leaders of Orange County together for the summit last Friday. Well, I think one of the things that I took away from the summit is how many people it takes to bridge those gaps. And if we don't get them close together, then kids fall literally fall through those holes. And that's very costly, isn't it? Very, very costly. Um, you know, costly in so many different ways, not just financially, but emotionally and generationally, because what we know and what we see in this, the science tells us this as well. It's, it's a cycle. Um, you know, we've heard so many times in our world, especially in the legal community, the domestic violence cycle, things of those natures that this is very true when we talk about not addressing children and families needs preventatively versus waiting until we respond after the fact, um, the cost is just off of the charts. I mean, when, when we talk about something as simple, and I'll, I'll just give you the example of the cost to incarcerate a youth here in Orange County, um, is about $60,000 a year, probably, and that's very conservative. It's probably more than $60,000 to incarcerate a youth. That same youth, you could incarcerate or you can educate for a year for less than 
Um, so when you talk about just the financial impact, it's tremendous. But also when you talk about the emotional and generational impact, these are families that if we don't step in and intervene early and appropriately, we see the ripple effect and we can see the just horrific negative consequences that it has for the families of this generation, but their children and their children's children. Wow. So we've got to get in front of this. We, we do. You know, Dr. Morton, you and I have talked endlessly about this, but my cycle here that my dependent children that come in as wards that have been removed from, you know, their families or their parents because of abuse or neglect, um, awful things that we see, then we see generations down the line that those children then come in with children in the system. So you really see that cyclical type of occurrence, which we need to put a stop to. And starting out the summit, you brought our California Supreme Court Chief Justice to this summit. What was your motivation for doing that? And what do you think um, people took away from her remarks? Uh, when I first thought and vision uh, as far as this summit and putting this together, and I think I shared with the group on Friday, you know, I always talk to my kids in my courtroom about, you know, dream big, the sky is the limit, uh, go for it. Um, so when I thought about this summit and the concept of bringing the most uh, dynamic leaders in our county and across the state to this, it was a no-brainer when I thought, who do I want to be my keynote speaker? Because the Chief Justice for us, she's clearly the leader in California for our judicial branch, but um, this woman is one of the most dynamic, innovative leaders that uh, I've been privileged to serve with. She's recognized not just in California as our leader, but also across the United States uh, for her innovative leadership, not only pulling us out of fiscal crisis that hasn't been as bad since the Great Depression, but what she sees for our children and families in our state is just what we've been talking about, that if we don't identify and uh, use prevention, that we know what happens as far as resources. She gave a, a statement that I thought was just hitting it out of the ballpark early on in the summit, which is changing the hearts and minds of the people is not easy and it doesn't happen overnight, but it does happen with a collective effort. And then she went on to speak about the resources and the fact that um, putting those front-loading resources into our youth will have the outcomes to prevent system involvement, criminal justice involvement, which we know has a rippling effect on community safety. Um, you know, the impact that if we are not able to keep those children out of the system, we know how costly it is. And Again, her initiatives that she has started in the state, you know, you mentioned in my bio, keeping kids in school and out of the court system. She knows the sciences, bridging the gap between the sciences and our evidence-based practices. She knows that if we're able to intervene appropriately with those practices, that we can reduce recidivism, that we can keep our communities safe, that we can keep our children safe so they are not vulnerable to human trafficking. We all know it's a cycle. We know if I've got a runaway who's vulnerable because of abuse, neglect, um, that child is going to be much more likely to hit the streets, run, and be picked up by a pimp and exploited. Um, so 
her vision on how she sees the big picture is spectacular. And she was able to come in in a short time, share with, I think we had over 400 people there on, on Friday, um, that, that very message. And so her statement was compelling. So keeping kids in school is pretty counterintuitive to some of the ways that we've quote unquote disciplined youth in the past with suspensions and expelling for um, misconduct. So what happens now? You know, absolutely. And there, there's a shift, um, Dr. Morgan, and it's borne out by the sciences because everything that's telling us, and we, you know, we had two fabulous experts, Dr. Elizabeth Kaufman and Dr. Jody Quas speak to this very issue as well on, on my children that are maltreated and their unfortunate, sometimes maladaptive behaviors as a result of that because of the chronic and acute stress and trauma that they've been exposed to has them act out, has them hypervigilant. And then that their behaviors sometimes get classified in the school setting as the willful defiance that you're speaking to. Um, and then it's the zero tolerance. So it's the suspension and the expulsions. So we know from our sciences that uh, keeping a child connected to their school will produce much better outcomes. And if we're suspending children and expelling them, you know, Dr. Kaufman also shared with us the fact that their system involvement becomes much higher. Their likelihood to become involved in the delinquency system is much higher. Um, those are all the outcomes we do not want. We want to keep our children attached to their schools. And so by some of the policy that has come over the last decade or so about zero tolerance, it's, it's definitely counterproductive to what we know has better outcomes for our youth as well as the community. So we're really pushing to change willful defiance. Um, some of our experts spoke on Friday about the fact that there are some counties that are completely eradicating uh, the suspension policy for willful defiance. And that's something that, again, when we talk about collectively all of the justice partners and the community-based organizations, the schools, um, all of us collectively have to recognize and work together in changing that climate that what we need to do is keep these children attached to their schools and keep them in school. Um, and that's not an easy task, but I think it's something that we can accomplish. So a, a closely related concept is the issue of truancy. Absolutely. So how, how, do you, how do you address that? Well, again, when you talk about chronic absenteeism um, and truancy, one of the things that we really need folks to shift to is recognizing, first of all, we need to be looking at these children much earlier when people are focusing their truancy efforts in the uh, junior high school, high school level. And I'm not saying you ever give up on a child, but it really is much too late in the game. Where we need to be focusing is at our preschool, at our elementary school level, our kindergartners and first graders and start looking at these maybe even just two absences a month or three and folks think that, well, that's okay, that's not too many. But then you start adding it up. You have to look at that and say, why is that six-year-old not coming to school? It's generally because there's a root issue, family issues that Again, we need to address the family holistically, which is another concept that our Chief Justice speaks to quite often and very much so in her entire initiative and innovative plans is that we have to look at the family, the family unit. What's going on? Is there substance abuse? 
is there mental illness going on? Is there domestic violence? Why is that small child not getting to school? And we need to be able to identify the issue before that child becomes tabbed, the truant, who then gets sent to what we call a SARB, which, you know, is a review board by the school uh, with respect to truancy, and then ultimately a filing under the truancy code, under 601 of the Welfare and Institution Code, before the court. We don't want these kids in the court system. We want them in their school setting, and we want to do what it takes to help the families and the communities keep them in their schools and the teachers. So we need to partner with our educational facilitators. I loved watching the lights come on across the auditorium as the doctors were explaining the science and especially of brain development and what our expectations are of children. They look, I mean, they're taller than I am. Everybody's taller than I am, but. um, Yeah, but you pack a lot in that small. There you go. There you go. So, so when we look at, at, how we address the the issues of around brain development, how is that impacted by being trauma-informed? It's so important, Dr. Morgan, and this is something, this is a real culture shift for a lot of people. Um, another message again, and I keep referring back to the chief, and this is why I say she's such an incredibly dynamic leader. Um, we cannot treat children as if they were just miniature adults. Um, Because as you said, you look at them and some of them are much larger than we are just by stature, but understanding where their brain development is at um, and coupling the presentation that Dr. Quas and Kaufman uh, brought for us, which was, okay, that brain development, we might have cognitive abilities at about age 15 or 16, but the the ability, that psychosocial control for impulse control um, and that executive processing from the frontal lobe, which hasn't developed, really explains a lot of their behaviors. And then when you throw in the trauma that Dr. Quas spoke of, especially my children who have been exposed to traumatic events as abused and neglected children, it just exacerbates the whole concept of the developing brain and the problems and the acting out behaviors. So especially as partners in our system-involved children, we really need to reach them where they're at and understand not only cognitively where they're at, but from the social behaviors where they're at, what they've been exposed to, so that when we do intervene, we're intervening appropriately and timely. Okay, so when I have this conversation with people, they keep trying to pull me back to, but... This kid needs to be accountable for his behavior. How do you address and absolutely, that? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, there's a difference. Accountability, responsibility, and how we intervene um, is very, very important. Nobody is saying not hold the child accountable because that's part of behavior modification. When we talk about cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, and a lot of our positive youth development uh, methodology that we're using with youth now, Nowhere in there does it say don't hold the child accountable and responsible. So, you know, that's a message we need to send very strongly that the folks who are trying to make sure that they are being trauma informed and aware of adolescent development specifically are by no means saying that you take the equation out of the concept of accountability. Of course, we need to hold a child responsible at the appropriate level and accountable. Uh, 
because bottom line is, is, you know, we don't want our youth running amok either. We just want them to be held accountable and responsible at an appropriate level. So when, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think it's, we're all trying to figure out how I walk on that really fine line to maintain that accountability without becoming um, so punitive. I, um, I was explaining in a class I was teaching about how some teachers use red, yellow, green cards, and they send them home with the kids if they had a good day or a bad day. And there's, um, there are some educators and psychologists that are recommending that teachers not use that because of the um, impact that happens to the kid who goes home to a very difficult environment. And I, I had a student uh, shoot her hand up and she said, every time they pinned a red card to my shirt and I had to go home, I got beat. And so it didn't help me perform better the next day. Correct. Um, and, and that's being, again, you know, Dr. Morgan, when we talk about being trauma-informed, and it really does put a burden on our frontline, what I refer to as our frontline responders, whether that be our educators, our medical practitioners, our law enforcement officers, because, you know, the teacher, for instance, on the, on the example you're giving, does she know to inquire? Does she know to follow up with that child? What's going to happen if I send this child home with this red card tagged to her? Is she going to get beaten at home? Is she going to be outcast? Um, or will there be parents who will sit down and talk with her about, you know, what kind of behaviors were going on? What do we need to do to modify those behaviors? Um, and at a level, a developmental level where she's at, really hard to make that call. And those are decisions, quite honestly, that we all have to make every day um, the more educated we are on the sciences, the more educated we are on how that child is developing, obviously the better we're going to be able to make decisions. Um, it's, it's, it's a pretty common thought that the more you learn, probably the better decision-making you're going to be making. That's right. Um, but having said that, we don't have crystal balls either, and, and I get that. So we, we certainly don't want to send the message that we're being, you know, uh, uber judgmental about you didn't make the right call with that child. Um, and there's practices that are longstanding practices that, um, as we talked about at the summit, these don't change overnight. This is a culture shift, very similar to the victim-centered approach for human trafficking. It yes. wasn't but five years ago here in Orange County that routinely my 13 and 14-year-old little girls were referred to as hookers, whores, and prostitutes. Um, and so moving that to a shift of that child's a victim, that child's a survivor, that child shouldn't be labeled a criminal. Um, she doesn't have the ability to consent to those sexual acts and that exploitation. But that has been a significant culture shift. And it's, you know, it's still moving the right direction, but we're not even remotely close to where we need to be just in that area. Wow. And, you know, that was one of the brilliant pieces of this summit. Uh, I'm going to put a link to the summit program so that our listeners can go and look at it, how the summit was structured. So the next panel was our journey toward juvenile justice. And it wasn't a juvenile justice panel. It was the behavioral health director, the, um, the 
Orange County Superintendent of Schools, the Director of Orange County Social Services Agency, um, so that we got a look at how these sectors are partnering and the ability to identify collaboration by looking at all of the organizations, the sectors that came together really did inspire hope for me. It it truly did. Um, And that was something that we wanted to be able to do was showcase the fact that we are very progressive in our collaboration. And you just nailed it, that um, those agencies are not your justice, juvenile justice agencies, but they are just as significant and important as the probation, the court, the DA, the public defender's office in our reaching what is juvenile justice and continuing to inspire hope. Because if they're working collectively together, then we're going to achieve the outcomes that we want. If these agencies are not able to work together, I can tell you, we're going to go back into the days of um, our rates of juvenile crime going off the charts because it doesn't take much as we see if a child starts in the dependency system or even high risk truancy system um, that they step over the line and then they cross over ultimately to juvenile justice and ultimately to adult criminal justice system. Um, So we really need to stop that cycle. We, you know, as, as the chief says, we have to interrupt that cycle. The, the other big voice that you brought to the table was the Board of State and Community Corrections, um, Linda Penner, and she's the chair. And I was so impressed with how she just echoed everything that was being presented by the frontline panels that were there. And that was that was very encouraging. The I'm looking at our time and we're we're gonna be winding down in the next five minutes. We had a panel on disrupting the business of commercially sexually exploited children with a great survivor and our DA. And I'm gonna I'm gonna bring them on to the um to the podcast. So we're not going to talk about them right now. But my favorite panel was the meant to make it panel. Tell me how you designed that. The Meant to Make It panel, again, we wanted to bring our collaboratives here in Orange County. And as as you recognized, uh, it brought in our Department of Education representative, our health care, behavioral health care representative. Um, it also had our uh, district attorney who represents our GRIP, which is our gang reduction program, another very strong recognized preventative program here in Orange County. Uh, we had our public defender on this panel. So it was an ability to show showcase, again, when we collaborate what we can do uh, to early identify and maybe prevent system involvement. But I will also tell you what it did quite well was showcase some of our deficiencies and our inadequacies, specifically, you know, one of my very, very significant issues for me are my children, both on the dependency side and delinquency side that are mentally ill. Um, And we have a tremendous amount of children in Orange County and especially our system involved youth that are suffering from mental health disorders. Um, We need to do a much, excuse me, a much better job with them the services that we have available. So there was a lot of discussion. We have some great services through OC links and I'm hoping that a lot of that was heard by um, 
the 400 plus people out there, including our frontline responders who may have not known about contact OC links. Um, but we need to do a better job of linking our youth with those appropriate services um, because we have children that are falling through the cracks who, like I said, are mentally ill. They hit the streets. They become vulnerable to all kinds of exploitation and victimization, substance abuse, um, because we weren't appropriately or timely intervening for them. I listened to um, hallway conversations between some of our frontline um, child-serving professionals, those law enforcement officers that are called to the scene where something is taking place. And in those conversations, the thing that I heard over and over again was, I never thought about it like that. Well, and magic if words. we didn't achieve anything at all, Dr. Morgan, that's exactly what I wanted to hear was that the dialogue has been started maybe by those who weren't familiar with a lot of uh, the information that we were presenting. I didn't know about that, but now I do. But now my, my concern is I want to make sure that the momentum we were able to start on Friday that we continue with. And, you know, because if, if we drop it where it was at, that doesn't achieve the outcomes that we need to have for our youth here in Orange County. And if we want positive outcomes, we also need to include the decision makers in in the political sector. And I was so impressed that uh, the chairman of the Board of Supervisors supported this, was here to launch it, was here to be part of of facilitating a panel and just, you know, a big shout out to our Board of Supervisors and their support and Todd Spitzer, uh, the chair other community leaders, the mayors, the police chiefs, the sheriff. I, I, I can't even begin to make a list because I'll leave someone out. It was extremely impressive. And, and that is the blessing of all of this is that we do have um, very strong support from leaders. You know, our board of supervisors, Chairman Spitzer, has been a champion for juvenile issues. Our sheriff, Sheriff Hutchin, is, you know, she, she provided us that beautiful forum to facilitate the large group that we have and bring everybody together. Um, and like you said, the, the list is endless. Um, our CEO's office has been completely supportive for the county. Um, and I can't uh, not mention my court. I couldn't accomplish any of this without the leadership of my court being supportive of me, um, as well as allowing me to run with this. Um, so it, it truly is something that has collectively uh, been a really significant movement for us here in Orange County. Well, I loved it when um, Chris Bieber told us that our population in juvenile, de- juvenile detention is like 25% of what it was a few years ago. Oh, absolutely. And it's about 50% less than it was um, almost 10 years ago. Wow, that's fantastic. Our time is is winding up. But what's next, Your Honor? Uh Next is, like I said, I do not want to lose the momentum that we now have. Uh, We want to continue to reach out not only to the participants who were present with us on Friday, but, you know, my charge to all of them as I wound up the afternoon on Friday was you need to take this message back to your respective agencies and organizations and reach out to our policymakers, to our legislative chambers, to the people who are responsible for drafting, whether that be laws, ordinances, regulatory, administrative laws, whatever it is, because some things 
truly need to change for us in Orange County so that we can facilitate meeting our children where they're at and being able to prevent them from cycling into the system. Um, so my goal will be to continue networking and bringing these folks together and making headway with better outcomes for our youth. Judge Hernandez and Sandy, uh, just listening to both of you speak here on this episode, and regular listeners will not be surprised by this, but I think it, it bears pointing out is just how many names have come up in this conversation from how many different agencies. And I think there's the tendency sometimes for those of us who um, maybe haven't been have and haven't have as much expertise in this area to think like, oh, well, once you become a judge or once you're, uh, you know, the uh, director of a nonprofit, that you have a lot of influence and there's a lot you can do in the world. And and really, the best leadership and the best influence comes through the partnerships and collaboration we talk about in this episode. So I just wanted to thank both of you for being great leaders in that way and just how much conversation we've had here this today about all the different partnerships that have emerged. And it really does take a, a whole village and a community to move this, to move forward in a positive direction. And we've seen some amazing things happen in Orange County. So thank you to both of you for that. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. I am thrilled and we're going to have you back. All right. Happy to be back anytime. Well, Sandy, uh, you know, we've just had another great conversation here. I'm just always so thrilled to be able to welcome our guests to the show and to be able to share more wisdom about how all of us can work together to address ending human trafficking. And there's so much more you can do as well. One of the things you can do is reach out to us with questions, things you'd like to know about, future guests you'd like us to have on the show, and maybe questions you'd like us to address in a future episode. You can reach out to us at gcwj at vanguard.edu. And the GCWJ stands for the Global Center for Women and Justice here at Vanguard University. You can also reach us by phone 714-966-6360. And thank you to all of you for all the fabulous reviews you've left on iTunes and Stitcher in the past. If you haven't yet left a review and you've been listening to the show for a while and it's been helpful for you, please take a moment to do that. That helps more people to find this show and for this wisdom to get out there. Thanks so much to you both and have a great day.